The Voice of Value is supported by Heron Todd White. Welcome to The Voice of Value, an API podcast for industry professionals where we explore insights, issues, opportunities and the careers of a range of leaders across our ecosystem. I'm Amelia Hodge, the CEO of the Australian Property Institute. This week, we're speaking to Robert Haycheck, Managing Director of Value Corp and the Chair of the Australian Property Institute of Valuers or our APIV scheme. Rob has also been a former chair, a former API National President and New South Wales Chair, uh, and who has enjoyed a long and successful career in the property profession and contributed a, a significant amount of his time supporting the API and its members by being a part of committees, of boards, and a mountain of advocating uh, in relation to the scheme to protect members' interests in the event of a claim. Welcome, Rob. It's great to have you with us today. Thanks, Amelia. What a wrap. I mean, that's that's really very, <laughs> very kind words from you. <laughs> Thank you. You've made a big contribution, Rob. Um, to start off, can you tell us a little bit about your career and your role as Managing Director of Value Corp? Yeah, look, we are probably one of the last independents uh, in, in Australia, I guess, as big as we are. We've been around for a number of years. I won't go into the exact number, but... Um, We've got some 20 odd valuers that uh, we have had with us for a long, long time. We do a lot of uh, residential and a lot of commercial. And uh, my role has changed over the years, as you can imagine, because I've certainly diversified my interest into other operations such as international and uh, you're well aware of the other interests that I've got out there. But uh, Michael Nell is now the CEO and he's doing a tremendous hands-on job to look after the business while I can spend probably half of my time out uh, doing the other areas that I'm, I'm very passionate about and very interested in. Uh, as far as the property sector, well, quite some time ago I got into uh, the market by getting a position with a very large company who was a raider. They were, they were company raiders. And they literally just plucked me out and said, right, we, we're going to um, go out there and find companies to, to buy and sell and strip and whatever. And your job, should you choose the task, is just simply go out there and look at all their assets right around Australia. It was unbelievable. It was amazing. And they would just give me a list and give me properties and give me a, uh, a lot of plane tickets and uh, off I went and I'd be gone for a week or even more and uh, did all the assessments, I'd come back and they would look at it and say, right, yes, this is a good one, we'll do it. And uh, no, it's not. And the next task would come up. So it was tremendous experience. I mean, sort of experience for a young guy was just mind blowing. You know, we did everything and anything. You were very much at your own wits to find all the information. It was fascinating. And uh, from there, just went like that, I ended up doing a lot of work for the mortgage insurers, uh, check valuations, and uh, slowly the business built up and uh, where we are today. That's that's kind of the size of it. Yeah. What else can and I was that, And did you have any particular sort of industry profession mentors or, along the way that guided you in your career? Look, at that time, I, I really wasn't that close to 
a lot of the operators in the business. I mean, I was a outsider coming in. It wasn't that easy. And uh, you just had to make your own way by your own skills and wits and whatever you could. And uh, yeah, it just worked out, I guess. Yep. Yep. A bit of, uh, you know, skills and uh, hopefully a bit of luck. And that's about it. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So you didn't really have that career kind of laminated career plan on, on the wall, so to speak, but no, you uh, no. fell into something that you um, grew a passion around, it sounds like. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. How yeah. fun. Um, so you're well known in the industry, obviously, as the chair of the APIV. Can you tell our listeners a little bit about the scheme um, for those that may not have heard about a limited liability scheme? Oh, you hit the topic on my uh, agenda. Well, look, I won't go into too much detail. I'm sure everybody knows a lot about it. I mean, we've started the scheme back in 2010. Uh, the original scheme was based on the highest valuation amount carried out in your previous uh, policy year. And the new scheme now has been changed so that uh, the cap is determined individually for each valuation carried out depending on the value and the assessed type. So. The firms are no longer tied down to, to um, a single cap. And then, of course, we've expanded our scheme enormously now into low risk. And we've got 10 new categories of low risk, which is all capped at a million dollars. And we brought in the uh, plant machinery uh, guys in. So the, the scheme has changed enormously over the years, and, and we've been improving it as we go. I mean, we are, we are now... Uh, a professional association that has got the capacity of self-regulation. There are 20 schemes in operation in Australia. And again, I always say this, we are the only country in the world that have got limited liability. I mean, it's, it's basically a unique product of our government. And we can now do our own accreditation, our own CPD, professional standards, complaints, uh, disciplinary system, and that all adds to high standards of professionalism. So when you go further, you say basically we, we, we have been awarded with a professional standard scheme and that limits liability. Uh, this, this shows that you know, we're an association which is committed to the professional standards legislation. And as a member, all our individual values are committed to protecting consumers and to improving professional standards. Hmm. That's what it's about. And the purpose of the scheme is to ensure that professional service provider is adequately insured and also that consumers don't miss out on any compensation should there be a, a court case. Hmm. And the schemes address the dilemma by limiting liability. And we make sure that if a claim is upheld by a court, the participating professional has got uh, the, the insurance to meet any damages. So again, Look, we have improved the scheme year after year. In this time, I think we've got an um, amazing scheme going. And look, we're not finished. We were still looking at improvements all along. Uh, there are many more low-risk categories which we can look at. And we're always looking at that. But the mandatory courses that have come out of this, which is really important, and I think that shows you the, the commitment. We've got the risk management module, which is now yearly. We've got the ethics module. We also have the residential valuation standing instruction, which is updated every year. And also we do mandatory updates on the uh, IVS standards, should they be necessary. So these are all required courses that add up to a higher quality reporting. And that adds up to less issues 
less claims and lower PI premiums. I mean, you know, in the last 10 years, we have actually seen that played out and the benefit of being someone who takes their professional standing very seriously, as in as in an APIV member, um, you know, maintains those standards and that high quality of, of professional development and they therefore gets the benefit of the scheme's protection. Um, you know, in the last two years, you know, I've spoken, <laughs> sometimes it feels like almost daily, uh, particularly through... You know, early to mid 2020, when we, you know, we worked on the development of the virtual valuation guidelines to support the advocacy work that we were doing to enable our members to maintain their operations. Um, and, you know, we've been navigating the challenges of the professional indemnity market for our members now for, for two years straight. And, and, you know, that, that, um, situation for some members that that environment, despite the very low level of claims, is is worsening in some ways. Um, what are the issues and sort of opportunities that you're seeing from for our sector through 2022 now as a result of all of that hard work? The best part of of the process has been that um, you know as much as we have engaged with insurers, we've engaged with the industry constantly, as you well know. And this cycle I've seen many, many times before. I mean, we are unfortunately uh, prone to to get this happening every so many years. It's got nothing to do with the fact that we have virtually got no claims. We virtually have got an industry that's functioning perfectly, except the global scene for insurance has changed. And I guess the insurers out there and the underwriters look at the industries that uh, possibly do not return the same amount of volume of fees. And I guess at that stage, always the the industries like ours will be the ones that get left behind. And again, you know, we've gone from 11 underwriters and 12 or so uh, people willing to cover us to maybe one or two. And that's an unfortunate situation. But uh, I assure everybody that, you know, we are working very, very rigidly on that side and hoping to to uh, make a difference and, and come up with some solutions for the member mm. but it is very there's difficult. No doubt. There's no doubt that the cycle of the of the insurance market and the property market, you know, impacts the the amount of premium that we pay in Australia and also the exclusions and all of the, yeah. the conditions on some of our members' policies, not all. Um, but, you know, in speaking with London, it seems to me that uh, the awareness of the very low claims environment of an Australian property professional or an API member um, may not be there or the premium pool for the Australian profession may be shoring up probably, you know, losses in other professional service occupation categories, I, I guess. And and in the past, um, how how frequently does this sort of cycle, have you seen this cycle occur? Uh, I can tell you back now almost four or five times. And I can distinctly remember one, and I'm not showing my age, but back in 2001 and two, um, we had four years where premiums doubled every wow. year. And that is amazing. I mean, we, we absolutely were decimated. I mean, there were firms shutting down and there were people walking away from the business because it was no longer viable. When, when your premium for PI becomes more than... Uh, 10 or 12 or 13 percent of your gross income it's 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 insane and that's, that's, that's not a sustainable business model no no and that's what happened i mean we we got to that stage 
And that's happened quite a few times, but not as severe as that. But again, here now, you know, we, we should be reaping the benefits of all the hard work we've done. And we should be seeing reductions and the premiums are still there and, and nothing's changing simply because there's no competition. And we need uh, more players in the market to offer us premiums. And yet, Greater competition. in my mind, and I'm sure you'll agree with me, the, the risk factor uh, has diminished to such a level that, that I'm, I'm amazed that, you know, there aren't better premiums around. Why would they give up their luxury lifestyles, Rob? <laughs> yeah, well, you said that. I didn't. <laughs> um, some of the other things that we're seeing at the moment through the profession, capacity constraints, um, you know, finding finding employees, uh, finding bringing people into the profession. Um, you know, there are so many firms taking valuers off, off other firms and... Yep. Yeah. On our jobs board, we've never seen such high rates of uh, of job offers and, and employment offers and people looking for work. And the COVID situation has just exacerbated that in a way with people either being ill, being yeah. furloughed uh, because they're a close contact or um, or just, you know, having that um, health risk that they're not prepared to take, you know, for fear of, of being unwell themselves. With respect to capacity building, what are some of the things that you've seen in the past really make a difference to the profession? In what sense do you mean? That? Just just additional additional valuers in the system. Um, how do we how do we attract more people to a, a career that you know people have had great success in and, and developed fantastic businesses and built strong networks? And what are some of the things that you might see that would attract more people into the profession? It's an amazing um, statement because that is kind of the biggest bane of our profession. We've had this ongoing for many, many years. The attraction of young people to, to, the, to the courses and to do uh, valuation has always been an, a, a problem. Mm-hmm. The, the big part of it that I find, and, and you know, look, we, again, uh, we're probably the biggest training ground for young valuers in, in Sydney. And I say this with all respect. Uh, you can just see around uh, the, the various firms, a lot of the guys that are in, in leading management positions and a lot of, uh, they, they all came through our school, School of Value Corp, and we've managed to do that. And I always uh, encourage other firms to put on young guys and trainees. We've got three at the moment, two are coming out, one just sat for his exams and will be up there in the, in the next few days. And that is really hard because you do your course, you do the hard yards professionally, but then you need to get the practical time. Mm-hmm. And that isn't easy because in, in, in the first year or two, they're, they're actually not exactly profitable. But then, you know, if we don't look at the bigger picture, that'll never change. And, mm-hmm. and I know it's very difficult for young guys to get practical experience. It is terribly hard. Mm-hmm. And it's hard enough to do the course. But you need to be more open. I think we all need to do something more to bring these kids through, to bring them professionally through. We put them in here. We put them on compliance. They're very useful. From compliance, as soon as they're they're in their final year, they start going out value. They spend time hands-on. They go out there. They're practical. Uh, Sure, they're not profitable, but that's not the point. The point is we need these kids to go out. We need them to get uh, experience and without the experience they're just not going to get there and they get disillusioned and they need like an articles of clerkship yeah, values, like with lawyers absolutely. and you know if everybody did their share and i think if everyone took on some of these we, we'd have a much smoother path 
and passage of these guys to, to the system. Mm. What What are some of the consistent themes that you're seeing out on the road for the property valuation sector in Australia? What are some of the, the issues that you're seeing or what is, where are the opportunities? The opportunities now are all in, in the sense that the market is growing enormously. Uh, as you know, we're all very hard up for staff. Mm. I think all the major firms are having the same problems, the, you know, the same old, you know, the, the people are poaching for one another. Uh, the growth in the market has been enormous. And as much as uh, valuations have constricted in the sense that, you know, ABMs and desktops and so on have taken a share of the market. But the, the economy is growing. We've got an enormous demand. And I think this year, of all years, when you look back, has been unprecedented for, for most firms. We have never, ever been so busy. And yet it's a COVID year. And the volumes of, of transactions and, and volume of, of um, sales and volume of refinancing has been enormous. Mm. And... Um, you know, everyone's at capacity, but we just don't have the numbers coming through to, to That's settle. right. So it's, a, it's right. a vicious cycle, isn't it? I mean, yeah, who, yeah. Knew, who knew two years ago? Everybody was predicting, if you recall, doom and gloom and property crashes and all the valuers would be out of business and the banks would be going broke and, and look, at, look at where we well, are. Uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's all yeah. I I'm no longer uh, looking at my crystal ball. I, I can't, can't predict anything. Uh, going forward, so I think we just need to roll with it and plan as the best we can, and then, you know, um, you know, change tack uh, when things go wrong. I, I swear I'm not using the word pivot in 2022. I promise. If you recall, Amelia, they predicted that prices would crash, that the whole market would collapse. Here, uh, mm-hmm. we were never going to get through it, and the exact opposite happened. I mean, the market has never been stronger and, and buoyant, and we've never seen increases like this in one year. Three percent. It's, it's crazy. crazy. That's what it is. But it's a good opportunity. It's good. It's a good time to be alive. We're learning a lot, and uh, and we're we're seeing a lot happening on the ground in in all sectors of the economy. Um, just off valuation for a moment. I know that um, that you've been involved with the United Nations um, International Fire Safety Standards Coalition. Can you tell yeah. our viewers a little bit about your work there? The IFSS is. Um, a product of the Grenfell fire in London. You recall in 2017, there was a major fire of a building mm. which was flooding and 80 people died. And uh, we, we got a call from um, the British government to put a group together to, to uh, with the assistance of UN to get together and uh, try and uh, formulate a way forward to get an international fire safety standard. And uh, we met in Geneva in 2018 in July. And after about a year of hard work, the group uh, consisting of some 80 global organizations completed an international fire safety standard. And uh, that was accepted by the UN in November of 2020. And it went to the 81st session of the UN uh, to be accepted. So the, 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 IFSS put a uh, global response to the fire safety address, which was differing, and also in some cases the fire safety standards around the world were non-existent. Mm. And uh, this now has been accepted, and we've just formulated a 10-year plan from 2022 to 30 to implement this with the assistance of UN across the globe. 
So it's a huge effort. It's it's majorly uh, important, and uh, we've just taken on the ten-year task of uh, trying to implement it around the globe. That's so, an extraordinary yeah. achievement, if you can. That's that's an enormous task. The the, the important part is that it was created and, and worked together by independent firms from around the globe, all experts, and they all independently contributed to this standard. Uh, we've got some other steps which we're hoping to, to go forward with. We are also going to look at uh, a sort of rating system which will enable buildings to display certificates to show compliance with fire safety. And also the, the biggest part is that we are trying to put a method together of reporting uh, fire loss data and pathway to a global standard for fire reporting. Because at the present, there is no globally consistent system of reporting, collecting, and analyzing fire loss data. You find that amazing, but it's true. Hmm. So, yeah, it's a big step. It's a lot of work. It is a big uh, step. And we've got, lot, we've got a lot more to do. Yep, always have. It's always another path to take, isn't there? But I do remember the wonderful photographs you sent me from the UN meeting in Geneva <laughs> in 2018. I was very jealous. What a hard work. Uh, now you're elected as Vice President of the World Association of Valuation Organisations or, or WAVO. Can you tell us a little bit about WAVO's work and what drives you to take on these sorts of roles? Uh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, look, WAVO was originally started in, in, in by Australians and by API uh, some 12 years ago and then we sort of dropped out of that uh, scene. But when I became president in 2016 um, and IDS signed an MOU with waiver of cooperation, I felt it was time for us to go back and I convinced the board to, to re-enter and we have been ever since. Um, the the organisation as it stands at the present consists of uh, Hong Kong, Singapore, uh, Romania, believe it or not, uh, us, the two Korean organisations, which I'm sure you've met, and the two uh, China representatives of the China Appraisal Society and the China Institute of Real Estate Appraisers and Real Estate Agents. They're the two biggest valuation firms. And also we've got Europe and Germany, uh, Ukraine Mexico. and Philippines. Yeah. So we have now talked for some time with IBS because, as you know, IBS is the standards keeper. Mm -hmm. And WAVO has always been the home for professional valuation organisations. We are seriously talking uh, because uh, IBS has got 82 members or VPOs and under those 82 VPOs there's some 340,000 valuation professionals. The aim is to try and um, put together a very high global qualification for values of the highest standard. And that is our aim. Uh, we are talking and working furiously. It's been on now for some two or three years. And uh, I am confident we can do this, and I'm confident it will happen. So uh, I'll, uh, I'm vice president at the moment. I'll be president in 2024. And by that time, I'm hoping this will be up. And we'll have it done. We may not expect France or Serbia at any time soon, will we? <laughs> not sure about that. <laughs> <laughs> 
Moving away from, um, you know, work matters, outside of work, you live a very active life. Um, What are your passions outside your career? And these are really important in supporting mental health and well-being. But what would your advice be to to younger folk, particularly young men who don't actively talk about, you know, needing support or, or, you know, what they might need to do outside their work to to keep well and healthy? You always need support, Amelia. My, my two biggest passions in life now is my family has always been and my five wonderful grandchildren. I've got three lovely girls who have given me five grandchildren so far and they're more. And they take a lot of my time. And my other part of uh, my life is, is uh, fitness and well-being and uh, keeping your healthy body and a healthy mind. And as you know, I... I train a lot, I do a lot of skiing, I play competitive squash and I really am convinced and I believe firmly that you really need to stay fit to be in uh, good form in business and I think Mm. it all comes together and uh, it is so important to me and uh, I I live by that very strongly and I always uh, make sure that uh, my my time in the gym and whatever I have to do is, is fairly well stuck to no matter what. I mean, we've got a lot of other things. You can always make excuses, but uh, no, I think that's a very important part of your life. Mm. Your squash team won the competition last year. Was that last year or the year yeah, before? Yeah, we did. Yeah, we did. We won. We, we played the Open uh, Sydney competition, North, Northern District, but uh, yeah, we did. I don't know how, but uh, yeah, we're working on it this year. But there's, Congratulations. There's been, there's been no competition since COVID, so yeah. Yeah, yeah and where are some of the places that you've skied in the world? I don't want to see photos from a few places. Uh, just about anywhere. Uh, Japan's my favourite. I've skied yep. in Chile. Uh, we've gone down uh, some 500 kilometres south to Argentina. We've skied across the uh, mountains there. I've skied in Canada, in the US. I've skied in Europe. I've, uh, I don't think there's too many left, but uh, at the moment I'm afraid I'm on a uh, sabbatical because there's no travel and there's no skiing and it's very painful. It must be. It must be. <laughs> like you, that's so active. Um, uh, so it's time to get out your crystal ball. What yeah. do you see as the biggest challenge for our industry over the next five years? Yeah, good one. Uh, look, I put it this way. We, we are making enormous advances in technology and this has been happening very much over the last decade. And these data systems and improvements and streams are a daily occurrence. I mean, there's apps for everything. Uh, To remain relevant as a property value and a property professional, I think we really need to use all these changes to our advantage. Our knowledge and our professional training as well as experience is our biggest asset. That's Agree, agree. We are the eyes and the ears of all our clients. We are out there for them. But... The, the, the main thing is we have to evolve with these changes. We have to evolve, we have to embrace these tools. You have now much better reporting systems. You have now far more accurate reports than we've ever had. And to become a better professional and your report should reflect these higher standards because you've got the tools now, you've got everything. I think the future looks bright and I think we've got a lot of things coming forward and it's changing rapidly. But again, I have to repeat that we really need to ensure their industry attracts young people wanting to be a part of it. And we really have to set up a system, and this is a bit of a hint, to do some training and seriously put these people through because that is missing. 
And I, I, I'm sad about that, but I think that's important. Mm, thank you. Um, all right, well, that wraps up our podcast today. Thank you for listening to the API podcast, The Voice of Value. Today we've shared our time with Robert Haycheck, the Managing Director of Value Corp and the Chair of the APIV. Thank you, Rob, for joining us. It's been a pleasure to chat with you, as always. Thanks, Amelia. I'm always available anytime, and I thank you for the time. It's been wonderful. Thanks again. <laughs> Please join us again for our future episodes. Uh, You'll find all our podcasts on our website. Uh, Thank you very much. The Voice of Value is supported by Heron Todd White.